Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Well, hello and welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager. And this is the show where we talk about all things related to God, life, and the Bible. And we are... Doing, I'm stuffed up. I'm just yeah, going to go ahead and put it out just there. Be okay? honest. Monique's had aller- bad allergies the last 24 hours. Uh, this is the most What's up, I've, I've seen her in a while. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, kind, so it's been kind of bad. Down, her hair was fixed. She had makeup on. She's ready to go. Makeup makes everything better. But you know, there there it is. Yes. Yesterday I had a conversation with, I, I don't know if she want, they want me to say their name, so I won't, but um, they, they're followers of the show and the the Facebook page and things like that. And we've had a couple conversations and I was like, look, I sound like Barry White. Okay. And it's going to be okay. We can laugh and get it out of the way. And then we literally laughed, but I'm like, that's family. Family will laugh at you when you sound a hot mess. And I really did. And so we laughed and joked and then I cried a little bit and we were like, let's go. So how are you? Um, okay. Things are very busy. I'm excited for the show tonight. Um, Things are hard, and yeah, it just is what it is. Yeah, it is. It is what it is. But thank you, family, for coming through. I don't know if you've been to the Facebook page on the Center for Biblical Unity, but if you haven't, check out the Facebook page on the Center for Biblical Unity Facebook page and leave a comment for Krista because you know what? Sometimes weeks are hard, and we can't really go into everything that's going on, but sometimes some encouragement is is good and needed, and it's just good for the soul. So we want to encourage your heart, and please be praying for her. Yeah, thank you. And there's just some days where um, standing for unity and truth and grace all at the same time, it's it's a little rough. So. Yeah, but you know what? Don't come <laughs> for the family, folks. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right out. Yeah, so, you know, one day this show might be brought to you by Krista alone. <laughs> That's all right. All right. Helping us on the show tonight and every night is Bob Bontrager. Woo! Now, I, I should make clear Bob is my husband. I had so we had somebody write in the show this week. Are you married? Yes. I thought they were talking to me. I was going to say no. <laughs> Do you know anyone? What's going on? So yes, they Bob were is my you. husband. We've been married almost 28 years. Yep. December. It's coming up. Yeah. Our, our anniversary's coming. And he's the, the genius behind uh, all the things behind the scenes. Any video you see that is produced from either Theology Mom, the Center for Biblical Unity, or all the things is always Bob Montrager. That's right. Yes. Well, you want to get into it a little bit? Yeah, let's uh, invite people to join us on the, the live chat over on YouTube. You can, we had people starting to uh, come in there and, oh, Music Production Alliance says he hopes he's not the only guy here. Oh, his name's George. Uh, no, you won't be the only guy. No, proverbial life. Edwin Ramirez is here. That's right. Yes. So we are glad. Uh, oh, our friend Caleb's on it against truth. Yes. So glad to see everybody and to um, have you join in on the live chat. And we all oh, some comments on Facebook as well. Thank you all. All of you for those 
very kind words. Yes. Laura on Facebook said that she hopes our show will be useful. It's her first time here. Oh. Hello, Laura. Welcome. And I hope that it's useful, too. You know, we all got hopes. <laughs> OK, I got hopes, too. I hope it's useful, too. Uh, but we, we really think it will be. Tonight, um, we have Dr. Corey Miller from Ratio Christi on with us. Yeah, so... We have some other announcements, but I guess you're you're skipping those. So we'll get pick those up later. So let's get into it. Yeah, people were like, "Hey, what's going right, on?" And right. I just I just was like, I wanted to be so hopeful. Stay tuned too, to so. the end yeah. of the show where we have the big announcement, the big reveal of uh, what we're doing. So just stay tuned to the end. Okay, so Dr. Corey Miller, he is the president and CEO of a ministry called Ratio Christi and. Washington Christie is a little bit like we some people may have heard of like Campus Crusade or InterVarsity. Ratio Christie is another campus type ministry that ministers to both high school and college students. Yes. Helping to reinforce their faith. Yes. Through what is called apologetics, yes. which is giving answers for your faith for your faith yeah why i believe what i believe and so. two rosho christie members staff members were on our show last week oh, melissa yeah. and devin palu and they were talking about interracial marriage and our, friend, our interracial relationships yeah and our friend jane pantig is also with rosho christie yes. she's been on the show before our friend joe miller yes has also been on the show before so uh i guess he's their dr miller's their boss yes <laughs> so let's get uh cory on here Fire up the Zoom machine, not sponsored by Zoom. All right, here we go. Hello, Corey. Hi, ladies. Thanks for having me. Yes. Hello. Thanks for saying yes to coming on. My so pleasure. We're glad to have you here. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. We had somebody already asking us on the chat. Uh, tonight, we're doing a topic on critical theory coming into Christian colleges and particularly focusing on that issue. Someone's asking you know, about your expertise. So maybe we'll just start off yeah. with that. Tell us a little about your background and expertise and, and what Ratio Christi is. Drop the knowledge on us. Sure. So I uh, come from a background in Salt Lake City, Utah. Probably no surprise then. I've got a Mormon background. Uh, seventh generation. My great, great, great grandfather was uh, one of Joseph Smith's bodyguards. And so I uh, grew up in Mormonism and uh, at some juncture uh, late in high school, I left Mormonism, came to Christ uh, through a non-denominational Christian camp in California, fell in love with Jesus, saw the life of Christ in people so much that I packed my bags, moved to California, lived my junior year of high school there with a Christian family where I was discipled. I, I came back to Utah my senior year to graduate, and that's when the pressure uh, was put on me from extended family, friends, culture, and so forth that Maybe I made a bad decision. Uh, maybe I'm an apostate, a son of perdition. Perhaps I have a worse off uh, eternity than even Hitler. And so the challenge was, do you want to reread the Book of Mormon again and pray through it and see if this is not true? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I do. And I was not an academic at the least bit. At one point, I had a 0 0.3 on my grade point average, uh, saved by a, a D minus, I think. Um, but I, I went through this time for the sake of truth rather than tradition, found the Book of Mormon to be uh, seriously flawed, couldn't believe I never saw this before. But what it did was to make me grateful that I'd left Mormonism, but make me second guess the conversion experience I'd had over the last year and the life change. Uh, because I had always been taught that the Bible was corrupt and that it didn't matter because we had a living prophet. Uh, we had prophetic utterance. 
now that we don't have that anymore, how do I know the Bible is reliable? How do I know God exists? And if so, which God? And so that sent me into this trajectory for a time of skepticism. And then um, apologetics was a new thing that came about in my life. And I saw the confirmations coming in left and right and wanted to engage further in philosophy and comparative religion. So long story is I ended up going into uh, theology, philosophy, a um, little more about my background. I, I come in fours, I guess. Uh, I've got uh, four wives. Just kidding. I only have one. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little LDS humor. Yeah, okay. I, I have uh, I have four members of, in my family other than myself, three children, one wife. Uh, I've got four books, Is Faith in God, Reasonable Debates in Philosophy, Science, and Rhetoric. Leaving Mormonism, why four scholars changed their minds. All of us are former Mormons, current evangelical, and possess academic doctorates. In Search of the Good Life, uh, Exploring Through the Eyes of Maimonides, Aristotle, and Aquinas. And then my most recent one that just came out last week, Engaging with Mormons. I've got four graduate degrees in philosophy, biblical studies, philosophy of religion and ethics, and then a doctorate in philosophical theology. Um, I've been on pastoral staff at four churches. Uh, I've had four professorships at Purdue, Indiana University, Multnomah University, Cola Bible College. Uh, I've been on staff at four parachurches, two are now defunct, but uh, Faculty Commons Campus Crusade is still alive. And, and then, of course, there's Ratio Christi. And other than all those fours, I've only been president once, and that's for about five years of Ratio Christi. Wow. So, Very good. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that's his resume. Uh in, in two minutes. So. Hey, do you by any chance know our cousin, um, Mike Gurney? Oh, yeah. Mike was a professor of mine and now a colleague, and I just talked with him last week. Awesome. That's Mike Mike. Yes, yes we are related. A, he's part yes. of our family. Yes, he is. So, awesome. Yeah. He's an old seminary friend of mine. We've known each other about almost 30 years now. So nice. He, nice. He, we were at, at uh, Talbot together. Very cool. Good. Yes. Well, we're going to jump right on in. Now that you've laid the groundwork, I'm like, don't come for me, folks. I already got I got my my resume right here. Um, can you explain a little bit about critical theory for us and the critical social theories? Like, what is it? And I'm asking this question, even though I, I believe most of our viewers have heard our conversation before. But can you redefine it for those who may be new? And then why or how does it differ from the Christian worldview? Sure. Um, and I, I first came to hear about um, this notion of critical theory in seminary about 20 years ago in liberation theology, which tries to, you know, be a hybrid between Christianity and Marxism, where Christianity is the shell, but Marxism is, is the core. And then when I got to Purdue for my doctorate, uh, which took me five years, and then I got that pulled out from under me and told I had too much of a faith perspective and had to resolve with a master's degree there. I remember one of my first classes was on Marxism, and I started looking at this going, oh, my goodness. Wow, this is where it's coming from. And this is this is absolutely amazing. This is this is revolution. And, you know, I, I'm you know, in grad school in philosophy, taking a class on Marxism from a distinguished professor of Marxism. And um, I remember thinking, uh, this is this is going to be seminal. At some point, this is going to come out of the woodwork. And I think what we're seeing in culture right now, it reminds me of the Tom Cruise movie, The War of the Worlds. 
where for, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of years, these machines were like under the earth. And at some point there was a trigger mechanism that went off and all of a sudden they started coming out of the ground all over the world and all hell literally broke loose on the earth. Well, it feels like that's happening right now, but it's not as though it just happened, the cause and effect overnight. This stuff has been underground for a long time. So critical theory uh, is an academic term uh, for listeners. They may have heard terms like um, um, well, queer theory, critical pedagogy, critical race theory, critical legal studies, et cetera. Actually, most of them probably haven't heard any of those. <laughs> but those are the social critical social theories. There's a whole lot of theories tied into this. But what they might have heard is something like social justice or uh, political correctness or identity politics or cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism. Those are terms like socks you can throw on a wall. And if any of that sticks, that's the ballpark of critical theory. Um, critical theory is a form of Marxism. Uh, it began in the 1920s in uh, Germany. Uh, it's a little bit different from classical Marxism. Most people think about Marxism, they think communism, so they think economic theory. But in truth, uh, and I've got an article published on this in a philosophy journal, uh, economic criticism was tertiary for Marx. Political criticism was secondary. What was primary was religious criticism because Marxism is a state-building worldview. It's about the whole, and it cannot allow something else to compete. Well, Marxism had these predictions that capitalism had its own self-destruction within it. It was just a matter of time. Uh, things came and went. It didn't self-destruct. Uh, World War I came, people pulled up their boots and they went to war with each other. So a bunch of guys got together in Frankfurt, Germany, and they were the new school, the neo-Marxists, the cultural Marxists, thinking through what went wrong and what do we need to do to resolve this and how can we broaden scope? Um, the reason critical theory is sometimes called cultural Marxism is because one of its seminal thinkers, who wasn't part of the German school, but he was uh, Antonio Gramsci down in Italy, um, he realized that there was this misconception of the theory of cultural hegemony, the, um, the domination of a culture by using um, the cultural institutions. And it was thought that there could be revolution and workers of the world would unite and throw off the ruling class and we would enter into eventually a time of utopia, the good life. Um, but what was realized by Antonio Gramsci and some of these um, critical theorists in the Frankfurt School was that uh, there is a coercive element of society called um, political um, society and there is a non-coercive element of society called civil society. And that is made up of religion and education and so forth. And the, the idea was we really need a slow, methodical, long march into the institutions. And we need to go after the civil society elements of religion and education. Once we get those, the coercive elements like law enforcement and military and government will just follow suit. And so it was a bad time uh, at that point in the 1930s, if you were a Jew, which most of the founders of critical theory were, and if you were a globalist socialist, that is not a national socialist, 
national socialist also like blue eyes and blonde hair and borders but you were a globalist socialist someone like an antifa an anti-fascist once the nazis came to power in 1933 they had to get out of there they eventually went over to columbia university in the u.s and um, started their long march through the institutions i won't bore the audience with that but the ideas behind critical theory is if you can imagine marxism uh and communism, and you think about it in economic terms of the haves and the have-nots, now you broaden that into the cultural elements all the way down in race, class, sex, gender, uh, nationality, ability, ethnicity, and so forth. Um, you're either a have or a have-not, a victim or a victimizer, an oppressed or an oppressor. Their view of human relations is that there are these social binaries that are always at odds. Uh, you're always in the oppressed or oppressor class, and those that are in the oppressed class have a little more insight, have a little more enlightenment into the situation. We call that wokeness or liberatory consciousness, and uh, or maybe you might call it minoritized Gnosticism. It's a special secret knowledge that comes along only to those who are oppressed. And because the problem in society is that human relations are in this um, unjust inequality kind of relational uh, parity, the goal, the ethical goal is to liberate through um, coercive means if necessary, to liberate, to free, to emancipate the oppressed individuals in race, class, sex, gender, so that any, any inequality or disparity whatsoever among human relations is often taken to entail an injustice. And because our primary identities are in groups, I, uh, group identities or identity politics, identity power, um, it's, not, it's not consistent with the Christian idea where identity is made in God's image and ultimately uh, ought to be to uh, imitate Christ, uh, made in the image of Christ. Now, your primary identity is in a group that's juxtaposed against some other group and the ultimate goal is not salvation uh, through Christ, but it is through doing the proper work uh, coercively, if necessary, uh, to eradicate inequality in order to bring about justice. That's well, kind of a, a nutshell. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. Now, I'm going to ask Monique. Here's a pop quiz for you. Is, is, did he characterize it correctly? Because you used to be a critical theory advocate. Why you got to put me out there? Like, I'm going to tell nobody. I, I never believe this mess. Some mess. I ain't never believed that. Who going to believe that? No. Yes, of course. And I love that um, he said that, you know, it's been around for a long time. This We're didn't just, just happen it, it in didn't May. It didn't just happen in George, May. George no. Floyd. Yeah. And we actually have someone, I'm, I actually missed her name, Girl on Foot, I believe. And she's, she said, you know, back in 2004, 2005, when she had her final two classes in undergrad, she, I don't, I'm not sure if she was a sociology major, but she took classes and unbeknownst to her became indoctrinated. And that's very similar to my story around the same time that I was here. I am in, um, in undergrad and take, I was a sociology major at a Christian university, Christian at Biola. And, you know, it was just, and I mean, that's public knowledge. It wasn't, you know, sorry. Um, <laughs> but it was, it, it, that's where I learned it. And that's where it became, um, 
part of how you thought. Not just part of how I thought, but yes, part of how I thought, but it was deeper than that because I had learned it on the street. This is what we would talk about on the street when I was a child. Like it wasn't, it didn't have statistical values and things like that and all these fancy terms and um, the names of these theorists or anything like that. But it was just, you know, kind of, even so even then is what I'm saying is that yeah. as a child on the streets in LA, hearing my my teachers and things like that in in grade school. Well, let me ask you a question. I don't think I've ever asked you this before. This is always risky when Ooh, I do here we this. go. Pop quiz. <laughs> so everything that Corey has described is very much like the academic side of critical theory and and critical social theories and all of that journey, the Frankfurt School and all of that. But I've heard some um Christian uh, African-American advocates of what we would say is critical race theory say, no, that's not, that's not critical race theory. That's just black culture. That's been, you know, they, they, they'll quote Frederick Douglass and they'll quote, you know, black thinkers that, that aren't part of this whole Frankfurt school and, and all of this. And they'll say, you know, people like, Corey Miller and Neil Shenvey and these people, they don't really understand this. This is all just a big, giant straw man calling it cultural Marxism. Mm-hmm. And I've never had that. I'm, I don't know. I've never we've never talked about that. So how, how do I take what everything Dr. Miller just said and understand that, you know, from the black experience that this is how you grew up? Have you ever thought about that? Can I come back to you? Yeah. Um. Well, I think Part of it, no, part of it just is. And then maybe maybe my upbringing is unique. But, you know, I I remember hearing things like the glass ceiling or that you'll only make it so far. You always going to have to, you know, like work twice as hard. These were normal things that were that were just talked about either in school or at my friend's house or at my house. And so when I hear like the idea, well, it's because we're all black and it's because they're all white or it's because they're all Hispanic or I grew up um, during the time where there was a lot of like Korean black issues in right. LA. Yeah. And so, well, they're all Korean, but everyone was grouped according to their groups. Even then, hmm. you know, the idea that, that we are always going to be under was an idea that was present when I was a kid. Okay. It didn't just come on the scene, you know, the last 10 years or, you know, 20 years with the rise of critical race theory or especially like since May, this is, I don't know. Like I would have to think about that a little bit more just as to how, how do we reconcile the idea that people like Dr. Miller or Neil would be wrong is what you're asking. Well, yeah. Cause I hear this charge all the time. I don't know, Corey, you can jump in here too. It's like, I think that that's a very common rejoinder among African-Americans that that the way that that Corey and Neil and others talk about critical theory isn't relevant to them because it's that's just an academic theory. I'm just talking about this is how my grandmother taught me to think. I wonder she never went to some fancy Frankfurt school. She never went to Columbia. But I wonder if there's some kind of like cognitive dissonance, some kind of disconnect between like the reality and what we're going through and talking about versus what I see over there. And especially because what I see over there is being put forth by a white person. It doesn't have as much clout. It doesn't have as much weight. 
Oh, as know. when when it comes from the traditions or when it comes from people within my own ethnic circle. Uh, I have no idea. I got to I got to go I ahead think, and think I about that. I just threw a curveball. There's a first. All right. So <laughs> I don't know, Corey, do you want to weigh in on that at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone can cite common evidence, can cite a common history, right? You have evidence and then you have interpretation. You have data and then you have explanation. And the evidence and the data is not uh, the same as the interpretation or the explanation. When you think of the term theory, think of the term theology, the first four letters. It's a broad explanation. It's explanatory. It tells why these things are the way they are. Now, uh, the one thing about the, the ministry that I'm involved in with Ratio Christi, the reason I'm involved in it is because if you want to see the pollution downstream cleaned up, you've got to go upstream. And ideas have consequences. And upstream, if you want to find any crazy crackpot idea, follow it to the university, and that's where you'll find it. This stuff has been around for a long time. I've watched this stuff. I, sn I can smell this stuff coming uh, because ideas have consequences. Uh, what goes on in the university doesn't stay in the university. Uh, as goes the university, so goes the culture. And as goes the U.S. university, so goes the world. Uh, these guys are theoreticians. Um, when they started in the 1930s, no one paid attention to them. By that time, naturalism had largely taken over the universities, the changing of the guard from, you know, virtually Christianized universities from 1636, virtually for 250 years up until about 1880. There was a 50-year period that uh, naturalism came through, through subtle philosophy uh, through liberal Protestant theology, even though virtually every president of the universities across the country, every university was also a member of the clergy, but there's a story to be told. I've got a journal article on it, how we lost the universities through subtle philosophy. It went from established, from Protestant establishment to established non-belief. Naturalism was in charge of the universities for quite a long time. At the same time, critical theory was just getting started. The naturalists paid no attention. The Christians paid no attention to these people. They wrote their books, their tracts. They got uh, just popular enough by the time for the 60s student revolutions and the sexual revolutions. And people like Herbert Marcuse, one of the original founders of critical theory, his book on Eros and civilization is viewed as the virtual Bible of the sexual revolution. So to say that this stuff didn't have impact is a total misunderstanding of history. And again, it's in race, class, sex, gender, et cetera. Um, by the time you get to the 90s, those students that went through those revolutionary times were just getting their teeth sinking into this literature. They got to the peak of their careers in the 90s. And then by that time, you know, you had a 2.3 to 1 ratio of left to right on professors uh, over the last 25 years. If there was a stock I could invest in to make a lot of money, and this stock was about the left to right ratio of professors, that would be the stock because now it's 12 to one uh, for 65 and older. It's 23 to one for um, 40 and under. And in some areas like religious studies, it's 70 to one. But just coincidentally, at the same time, critical theory had just caught the crest of the wave. And now, and what they were defining in the 1960s as the new left has overtaken the old left. So that what we're seeing in our culture, even cancel culture, is part of this. 
It's part of this repressive tolerance. All of these ideas, the things that we're seeing downstream right now in culture, you can trace these back and you can see right where they're coming from. So right. people don't need to know fancy academic terms. They don't need to know the history to be imbibing an ideology. Well, and I think that certainly we're seeing that playing out right now in our culture that, you know, just going on social media, you, you're imbibing critical theory um, and, and woke ideology. You, you know, it, a, a 15 year old on social media is getting indoctrinated into critical theory yeah. now. Um, I want to go to Terrence Williams comment on YouTube. Terrence is a pastor uh, back east and he's an African-American uh, he says generational victimhood makes critical race theory so acceptable in the black community. They may not know the terms, but the mentality is passed down, um, sometimes part of black culture. I've heard this stuff all my life, which is somewhat of what, what you're saying, too. And we also had a comment from I believe his name is George. I'm sorry if I missed it. But it's a music production alliance is his handle. And he corrected me. He was like, no, nah, girl, I grew up in South Central L.A. Me too. Um, <laughs> this was taught daily. I'm Hispanic. I went to Washington High. Um, I'm not supposed to be where I'm at. And I would say, yes, like the, you're not supposed to be where you're to, at. No, no. And someone asked a question on here that says, uh, 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 uh. What did she ask? What about people of color who are in authority, police, mayors, Congress, et cetera? Um, Wendy YouTube. Crane on YouTube. Wendy, Wendy Crane. Crane. Keep going. It's at the bottom. Right there. Yeah. What about people of color who are in authority, police, mayors, Congress, et cetera? Are they still oppressed? Even if they have more power, how does CRT viewpoint handle this? Do you want to go for it? Sure. I mean, again, one thing needs to be made clear. We're captured by CRT right now. And that's because of Floyd uh, exploiting that situation. And now we're we're captured by critical race theory. But critical race theory is a subset of the larger critical theory or cultural Marxism or social justice is the term. Right. Uh, but just because one person in a an alleged oppressed group uh, can become a billionaire or can become a star or can can rise up above their status quo, their oppressor group status. The explanation for that uh, is just, look, these are, are general generalities about these groups. Uh, they're not cherry picking every single individual. And when you get individuals in one of those oppressed groups who disagrees with this narrative, uh, say like a Candace Owens in Critical Race or Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever, uh, homosexuality or, or uh, Douglas Murray, who's gay, and they don't go along with the oppressed narrative, uh, they're said to be, you know, not, not properly functioning. They're still caught by their, their whiteness in culture. They haven't fully come to realize their liberational consciousness. They're, they're suffering from uh, the victimhood that they don't even see it still. So they've got an answer for that, but I, I would want to say just pull back. Number one, it's it's not about individuals anyway, as a, as though that counterexample destroys the theory. It, it's a theory about groups, yes. uh, but but that our primary identity in life is in one of these groups or in many of these groups, and so we can have perhaps almost an infinite number of social identities. And the more uh, oppressed groups you're in, the more kind of a moral voice you'll have. 
uh, to speak from a position of knowledge because you live in the oppression and you live among the oppressed. And so you're supposed to be able to see both of those at the same time. Well, yeah. Okay. I was going to transition, but go ahead. So, but one of the things too, that like um, in Delgado's book, they mention the idea that even for a person of color to become affluent, it would be only to the benefit of the white person. Like things for people of color don't just happen because it happened, because we worked hard, because... Um, because you earned it. Because we earned it. Like you don't get a black president because you have, you know, a, a guy who's really good in office. The, these things also happen because it was allowed by whites and it happens to the benefit of white people. So there's answers like, like Dr. Miller. And that's saying, from the perspective of critical theory. There, yeah. Yeah. That's how they would answer that. There's always an answer to why someone can move up or why someone can, can maybe navigate the system a little bit, maybe, um, or I would say the, uh, no, I'm not going to even go all down right. that route. So yes. I'm going to transition us now into how all of this that we've laid all this groundwork now is coming into Christian universities because everything that, that you've said so far, Corey, I mean, it sounds pretty, pretty secular. <laughs> like, you know, I think critical theory is arguably the biggest uh, cultural shift since the enlightenment. It's, it's, really a, a big ideology that has penetrated our universities. But what I'm seeing and I've started noticing is it really coming in full force into Christian colleges. And I think that um, it's kind of come in under the banner of love for neighbor. Like we're going to fly almost everything under that banner of love for neighbor. So if we want to love for our our neighbor, we have to engage in these kinds of social justice and diversity policies, but they come out of critical theory. Um, but I'm just wondering what you, are you seeing on, on Christian colleges and what what do you think is making Christian colleges vulnerable to this? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a number of things that could be said there. Um, I've, I've developed a relationship with an atheist philosopher who is a product of the Enlightenment, Peter Boghossian. And uh, he is under fire as well. And several atheist uh, thinkers in the universities are under fire. And there is a convergence. There is a realignment happening with some liberal atheists and some conservative Christians. Uh, so one ought not think that this is just Christianity against uh, some uh, nefarious or foreign ideology. This is about Western civilization. One of the things that atheist philosopher Peter Boghossian said to me after lunch one day, he invited me to lecture in his classroom on uh, God's existence in his atheism seminar. He said, look, we have lost the war within atheism. He says, and you know me, I've written the book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. I no longer want to deal with that issue uh, going after Christianity because there's something worse in the room right now. And if you go, we go. If we go, you go. We need to do this together. We need an alliance. What he's talking about is, is this ideology that we're talking about. It's not just about race. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's about the destruction of Western civilization. It's about 
criticizing the fundamental values and beliefs uh, that has undergirded the West, not just Christianity, though I would argue uh, it's Christianity that has made the West into the great place that it is, not to say that we don't have our problems. Um, but when you talk about, um, you know, do we see this stuff coming into the Christian colleges and, and universities and seminaries? Uh, yeah, uh, the same way we've been seeing it come in since the very beginning. Uh, again, we started the universities. Um, I've been at most of the colonial schools uh, that started from 1636 on, and they were all Christ-centered, as I said, up until about you know, 1890, when church and chapel attendance were required in every one of them across the country. Uh, but you saw this creeping into them. And over time, uh, the Christians or the conservatives, as opposed to the liberals, because virtually all the universities were Protestant at the time, uh, they had to take a tactical retreat and start the Bible college movement or, or phase two, you know, a tactical retreat and start Moody Bible College or Biola Institute of Los Angeles or uh, Wheaton College, and so forth. Um, the first phase of the invasion was naturalism, methodological naturalism coming through liberal Protestant theology, giving us the social gospel. We're now seeing phase two, and it's coming into our um, tactical retreat institutions. Uh, and this one's not coming from the hard sciences this time. It's coming from within the humanities, the social sciences, and it's not, it's not dry and dull like phase one uh, science stuff. This is wet, it's juicy, it's about ethics, it's about justice, it's, it's co-opting the Christian ethic. You know, um, uh, you know, hate or celebrate, what would Jesus do? Um, you know, there's oppression, right? Right. Um, the Bible teaches original sin, right? And all of us are sinners, right? And you've probably oppressed someone, right? And look at this history, look at this data, look at this evidence. What would Jesus do? Hate or celebrate? Are you a racist or do you want to be an anti-racist? Well, no, I don't want to be a racist. I mean, it's worse today maybe to be called a, a racist than it is to be called a rapist. And so everyone wants to be an anti-racist. Well, what does that mean? Well, the authors like Ibram Kendi will tell you what it means, but we don't always listen. And so this stuff gets smuggled in through a Trojan horse into our Christian institutes, uh, to our churches, to our campus ministries, our academic societies, um, Christian institutes of higher uh, learning. The barbarian is not just at the gates anymore, it's in the citadel, and it's across the board. Um, and so, yes, I'm seeing it coming into our second wave Christian institutes, uh, but it's coming from the humanities this time, and it's coming from this Trojan horse of social justice. I think that's really important. I'm glad you highlighted kind of the origin of the Christian college movement and, you know, places like Biola and, and Moody that were some uh, some on the, the cutting edge or the, the, the first to be founded in the Bible college movement. Because what happened, and a lot of Christians don't know this, but about 100, 120 years ago, there was this movement called modernism that came in and it went across denominational lines. And so then you were either a modernist or a fundamentalist. And that's where a lot of these denominational splits happened about a hundred years ago. And so then you had like the conservative Methodist and the modernist Methodist. So you had the conservative 
Baptists and the more modernist Baptists. And, and then that led into, well, how are we going to educate our children? You know, how are we going to educate the next generation? How are we going to educate our pastors? And that began the rise of the Bible school movement, which was really a way of trying to preserve the faith against modernism. And Biola was part of that in the beginning and other schools that came out of that Multnomah and other schools that came out of the Bible college movement. So you have the old Princeton of Warfield and Hodge, um, you know, in the late 1800s, but now Princeton is, you know, this, this bastion of, of liberalism. Well, what happened? Well, when modernism came in, um, that's when Westminster broke off with Machen about a hundred years ago, they started like the conservative Presbyterian seminary. And we saw this play out over and over again across denominations and the, the explosion of the Bible college movement. Well, now we're seeing kind of a replay of that, I think. And I would be curious to get Corey's thoughts on this because this is just a theory that I have of it seems like critical theory is now coming into a lot of these very colleges that were established originally to combat modernism. But now critical theory is coming in through the humanities. I'm wondering if, if, if I'm on the right track there or if you see it differently. Yes. And you're seeing it pop up on new views of sexuality that theologians might be experimenting with in light of uh, gender fluidity. You're seeing it on the race card where uh, entire Christian institutes will take a day off to reflect on their white privilege. You're seeing it in the cancel culture where, you know, five years ago, I think, or four years ago, I was teaching ethics at Indiana University and I I had a former pastor who turned gay. He was one of my students. And when we got to the part on human sexuality, it's an ethics class. Every day is a controversial topic in the class. Uh, He called me a homophobe and charged me with creating a suicidal environment. And I had to get Alliance Defending Freedom to, to back me along with some atheist students in my class. And one day I asked him, I said, what about tolerance? I thought we discussed uh, the whole issue after class one day. Now you're trying to get me fired. He said, I don't believe in being tolerant to the intolerant. And I remember thinking about that at the time when I was studying Marxism and studying Herbert Marcuse's view of repressive tolerance. See, this is not liberalism. Liberal is like you just pointed out, Krista. Uh, Liberal was equivalent with modernity, with the Enlightenment. Uh, I can say that I'm liberal because I'm conservative. Uh, if you understand what classical liberalism is, it, in, you know, it embraces the individual rights, uh, not the collectivists, which is more Marxism, the group thing. It in, embraces um, you know, liberty, freedoms, freedom of speech, cognitive liberty, free thought even. Um, you have something that comes out of Voltaire, that um, his biographer actually wrote it, but it's attributed in thought to Voltaire. I may disagree with what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. That would be what a liberal and a conservative could believe, and we could debate back and forth on issues. Uh, so would that be like Bergogian's perspective as an atheist? He, but he would still be like a, a classical liberal. He he believes in that kind of old-fashioned notion of tolerance. Him, Helen Pluckrose. 
That's right. I mean, they'll, you know, they, they affirm, let's say homosexuality, they might affirm, you know, your bigger government, uh, liberal view of economics, perhaps. Um, maybe they have certain views on abortion, sort of the, you know, liberal conservative stuff we would debate two, three decades ago. In the last five years, in the last maybe 10 years, but certainly the last five years, as this war of the world, so to speak, just exploded, what you're finding is even the classical liberals, liberal atheists, are finding that they're being taken over. The hard sciences in the secular universities is being taken over by this stuff. And it's not Voltaire where we have free thought or free speech, the First Amendment. Uh, no, Stalin said ideas are more powerful than weapons. We don't allow our enemies to have weapons. Why should we let them have ideas? So I experienced what I did at Indiana University I never dreamed I would be canceled from a traditional campus ministry like I have been in the last 12 months. I've been boycotted by another one. I've been disinvited from the only conservative seminary within a particular denomination where all the other seminaries are liberal because of this critical theory, social justice type stuff. There I mean, so, does is, seem to be a certain even cancel culture, if you will, among Christian colleges and seminaries, that if you speak out against critical theory and say, this is not compatible with Christianity, you will be disinvited. And it's not just disinvited, but it's like you serve a different Jesus. Like I just saw a post on social media where they were like, it's a different Jesus. And they were talking about the person who was opposing critical race theory or critical social theories and laying out all of this, you know, reasoning for why it wasn't in line with historic Christianity. And they was like, well, this person is definitely talking about a different Jesus and I wouldn't want to be a part of that Jesus, which I mean, cancel me, but goodness gracious, can we agree to it? Like, I love the Lord. You know, I think there, there's, there's a line and in this moment in culture, we're definitely going way over that line. And it, it's like, saying that historic Christianity is part of an antichrist movement. But I don't think a lot of Christians are in reality yet about how much this has come into Christian colleges. I mean, when I started making posts about this several months ago, people would say, oh, this isn't happening at my Christian college. This isn't happening at my school where I graduated from. And they would list the school. And I'm thinking, oh, now those same people yeah. write in and say, my child is woke. Can you help me? <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah. it it is prevalent. I mean, it's it's the I think it would be the exception now yes. for the, for there not to be critical theory ideas and policies that are being advanced at Christian universities rather than the rule. But maybe I'm overstating that. Do you what are your thoughts about that, Corey? Right. Uh, I mean, I recruit at probably, you know, 20 Christian seminaries or colleges per year. And some people have asked me, well, which ones are the ones that are being invaded by this foreign ideology from, from outside? It's not liberal conservative. It's, it's Marxism. It's the social justice stuff, this critical theory stuff. Again, socks thrown on the wall. Um, and I, I'd say, well, how long do you have today? Um, it would be easier if I could tell you the ones where it's not happening because in most of our second wave Christian institutes, that is not the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, but rather, you know, the Biola, Moody, uh, Calvin, Wheaton, and so forth, 
in most of them, they have uh, cracks in the fissures with respect to phase two that's now invading into those systems. And this is what cultural Marxism is. Remember when, when Antonio Gramsci said, we need to prepare for the long march into the institutions. And what he meant in, in civil society of these institutions was into the non-coercive institutions of religion and education. Well, right now, I mean, you've got uh, a political hegemony, a political orthodoxy in universities. There are dozens that don't have, say, a single member of the Republican Party. Uh, but, you know, 96% of all Ivy League faculty donate to one political party. Um, you've got a handful of conservative professors. Some might be Christian, some might not be, but you're not going to say anything. So it's, it's very bad for education. But a lot of, um, you know, the highest level schools, if you get your degrees from Harvard and Princeton and Yale, well, then you're in the lineup for the first round draft choices from tier two universities or tier three. And it's very appealing if you get a degree from a secular institute uh, to get hired on by a Christian institute. And this is how we saw uh, certain of the second wave institutes start to fall the same way we did in the first wave. If you want to go look it up online, by the way, uh, Christian Research Journal, just Google how we lost the universities and pull up my name. You can see how that happened in the first wave. In this second wave, it's starting to happen in a similar way. You're getting uh, administrators who aren't theologically or philosophically savvy. They're not able to see the subtle philosophy creep in. And, you know, the Apostle Paul warned us about this. He, he talked about false philosophy. He, he admonished us, uh, especially Christian leaders and parents, your leaders of your homes, to um, beware of false philosophy. Well, you can't beware of it if you're not aware of what it is. Um, and so this stuff's coming in through administrators, uh, policies. Anytime you've got a a post in a university called the, the DIE, D-I-E, Diversity, uh, Inclusivity, Equity Officer. Immediately flags should be going up saying, why do we even have this here? Especially at a Christian institute. What's, what's going on here? What kind of diversity are we talking about here? Uh, skin color, body parts, perhaps. Uh, what we're lacking is a viewpoint diversity in the secular universities. The secular universities are as monolithic in their secularization as the Christian ones are on the Christian side. But now in the Christian institutes, we're seeing not scientism come in per se, even though that's there, um, and methodological naturalism, even though that's there. What's really taking root is this subtle philosophical Trojan horse on the surface known as social justice uh, but when it's explained what we mean by justice, uh, where does this social justice come from? You start to realize it's an invasive philosophy from outside, from outside America, and it's not your standard liberalism. It's not liberal Protestant theology. It's hostile to a Christian worldview. And yet we're dating this stuff, uh, recording this stuff in most of our Christian institutes right now. But I think that that's the confusing part that a lot of Christians just are. They don't have their eyes open yet because they hear words like like justice, oppressed, marginalized, diversity, inclusion. 
and and those all sound kind of Christian-y. We want to be inclusive. I don't want to leave nobody I, behind. I like, you know, and and inclusivity yeah, for Jesus. Yeah, dignity. No. That's Mm-mm. important. I just know? had this conversation yesterday with um with two people and you know, it, this is what I was saying, you know, like at, at some point we have to realize that Christianity is an exclusive worldview. One. And two, what are you what are you getting into when you talk about diversity, inclusivity and equity? How are those terms? How, being how are they being defined? And when you are putting someone in charge of an entire area of, of a university and especially with the, the consortium of Christian colleges and universities who are who are pushing this DEI situation of diversity, equity and inclusion. And that person is woke. That person is is aware or to well to be woke to be aware of the social issues and um oppressed oppressions within a society when when they come at that from this view everything that gets pushed on your students and everything that gets pushed on your faculty is going to be from this narrative well and let's let's even break that down further because here's what's happening in a lot of christian colleges is you have somebody who's high up in the administration that their whole job or their whole department's job is to implement policies, HR trainings, um, rewriting course syllabi according to diversity, inclusion, and equity. And let's let's not mistake the definition of diversity. It doesn't mean that we're going to have more people of color. That's not what that is. It's we are going to put in places of power people who think according to this critical theory ideology that's uh-huh. diversity yes and Power. and so we have to we have to understand that and and then we put those people in place they implement policies across the university and if you do not comply i'm going to go back to a word that Corey used in the first question coercion he used that multiple times because if you do not comply with this you will be Coerce, either you go along with these trainings, either you attend to these trainings, yes. either you adopt these policies too, or at least feign compliance to them. Yes. Or you will be reprimanded or possibly let go. I'll right. let you and jump in, Corey. Of the, because of the theoretical approach that we're starting to imbibe, uh, you're starting to shuffle the power brokers or the influencers in these places too, so that they are representative of these diverse um, groups, but these diverse groups that think a certain way. So for example, when I was, uh, I was disinvited from that one uh, Christian seminary and the dean, the reason why they disinvited me, I was supposed to follow Jamar Tisby on the color of compromise and give a different perspective. But the dean prayed and God told her that only Tisby was to come, that I wasn't to, uh, much to the chagrin of the professors. But uh, she was an administrator. And then she told the professors that they're also going to be hiring a bias personnel, someone that can administrate diversity, inclusivity, and equity. Uh, as Providence has it, I was invited by a different university to be on a panel the same week that I was disinvited from the other one. And on the panel, I was one of the only, you know, white males. And I remember, and one of the people on the panel was a die at that Christian university. And I remember on that panel, 
uh, I stood up, I was the first one to go. And I said, hi, my name's Corey and I'm white. Hi, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, it's like it's an AA program. I've just confessed my sin uh, that everybody knows. And I said, look, that's a joke, but I almost have to say this as a disclaimer. And I have to explain why I have to say it. Because frankly, a lot of people are probably viewing me up here and thinking, I don't have anything to contribute. Why? Because this is a panel on critical race theory or race theory, and I don't have a voice. I'm viewed, even at a Christian institute, as someone who really doesn't have a lot to offer because I'm white. That's the same kind of mentality that we see in the reproductive justice part of social justice, abortion. A man has nothing to offer, uh, nothing. He just needs to listen and allow the woman to speak and, and do whatever she's going to do. And then I made the point that this is um, a fallacy. It's called the genetic fallacy in critical thinking that critical theory often lacks, but in every one of the categories, race, class, sex, gender, uh, ethnicity, nationality, ability, and so forth, this fallacy takes place and it is the fallacy that confuses uh, the source of a viewpoint or the rationality, uh, the source of the viewpoint with the rationality of the viewpoint. So I said, for example, I could give you my viewpoint and it might fall on deaf ears, but if I give it to the African-American male on this side of me, or better yet, the African-American female on this side of me, and she verbatim quotes what I just said, now it's somehow valid. So. And the second thing is, is that it, what it does is it, it creates a monolith of, you know, all in that case in critical race theory, it's actually racist. All blacks are supposed to think a certain way. Yep. All women are supposed to think a certain way. Uh, but we've started to buy this. And that's why we're starting to fill all of these posts with people that not only have certain skin pigment or private parts, uh, they're doing in campus ministries like crazy right now. Um, but not only is, is that taking place, but it's someone with the private parts and with the skin pigment that has a particular viewpoint, a woke, enlightened viewpoint from a certain theory. This, so this is very subtle, this philosophy, and it's coming in everywhere from our academic societies to campus ministries, from seminaries uh, to churches. And I think what people have to understand is that and I want to emphasize a point that Corey made earlier, just in case it blows by people, because it's so important on the practical level, is that in a lot of the, the meetings that you and I have been having with many different types of people working in Christian higher ed, yeah. one of the themes that we're noticing is that a lot of the people who are being hired and promoted into administrative positions in Christian colleges or hired as professors in Christian colleges, they went and got PhDs in secular programs. Yes. That's not a bad thing. But the problem is, is that if you're not really careful, you become the product of your grad program. You just imbibe that naturally. And if you haven't been super intentional about, well, how do I square what I'm learning in my grad program with a rigorous philosophical worldview framework as a Christian, and you've done some hard work of the integration, 
you can get hired at a Christian university because you can sign off on their doctrinal statement and you have a Christian yeah. testimony. But if but then you come into it and you you're bringing all this this intellectual baggage with you into the Christian university and then just propagating that yeah. to your students, creating HR policies based on it. It takes a ton of philosophical sophistication, awareness um, to intentionality. intentionality to to undergo that integration process between an academic discipline and the Christian worldview. And what we're finding is that the reason that so many of these Christian colleges are getting overrun is they aren't asking the right questions in the interviews. Yeah. They aren't asking the, these people with these with these PhDs from secular institutions. Well, tell me about your particular academic discipline. What would be a foundational assumption that you have been taught in grad school in your doctoral program that actually is a conflict with the Christian worldview? Yep. These are not the questions that are being yeah. asked. Yeah. And, and then they're placing people or people are being promoted into seats where now they have tenure or, you know, now the, no one's going to remove them. They're the president of a university or they're the provost of a university. No one's going to remove them. They have now also, you know, put board members in place and things like that. So now the university is susceptible to having hiring practices that come from one of the critical theories yeah. or critical social theories. And it, it is now like info, it, it's allowed to be infiltrated because now we have all of these pockets of people who are be, who have been strategically placed. And once they're strategically placed, the goal is to uproot and overturn. And, and they're not this. Let me tell you, Christian parents, this isn't in the marketing of the school. You got that right. That you're not going to find this in the glossy brochure or on the website, like, hey, we advocate critical theory in, in these academic disciplines. Y you are going to, you know, un need to understand that, again, this is the this is the rule rather than the exception. And to really understand, you know, what you're choosing in sending your child to to some of these schools. I don't know, Corey, do you want to weigh in on that? I know Monique wants to go out to some questions, too. I'm itching yeah, for a question. I, I would I would say. Look, a lot of parents uh, adopt the idea, look, it's so dangerous out there in the secular universities because secularists have found a brilliant way to get Christian parents to pay for the apostasy of their own children, these universities. Um, and they are uh, a, a firestorm uh, to send your kids in unprepared is crazy. So you want to send them off to a Christian institute. But there lies the deception because right now the Christian institutes are being faced with uh, this issue, and it's more subtle philosophically than the former issue in phase one that was the science issue. This is ethics. This is juicy. This is about justice. What would Jesus do? But there's a theoretical underpinning to it, and if you're not aware, you can't beware of it. And so we're going to have to do the hard legwork, and I'm sorry, this is just something that is has plagued the evangelical American church for a century. Uh, Mark Noel wrote the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, in which he said that the scandal is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. We love God with our hearts. We love God with our hands. But with our heads, uh, no wonder the world tends to think, as Bertrand Russell allegedly said, most Christians would rather die than think. In fact, they do. Uh, we need to be about studying our scriptures. Uh, we need to start with scripture and theology rather than um, 
um, sociology and um, um, culture. So scripture and theology, not culture and sociology. We need to be grounded in the scriptures, but we also need to read some books on Christian thought. Look, apologetics, the defense of the faith is relevant right now because Christianity is on the outskirts. Uh, people are skeptical of, of what, we, what we believe. But we've entered into a different cultural milieu than where we've been in the past you know, 300 years, well, since 1636, almost, almost 400 years, well, long prior to this country. Um, we're entering into a, a paradigm change in our culture. And this is why I said it's not liberal conservative uh, this is Marxist. It's it's a different viewpoint that a lot of people just are not accustomed to. And we've got a thing now called cultural apologetics, but you cannot have an adequate cultural apologetics if you're not familiar with cultural Marxism. That is the viewpoint that is scaring the bejesus out of neo-atheists. I mean, yeah. my friend, an atheist, you know, philosopher Peter Bogosian told me two weeks ago, he, I, he told me how Richard Dawkins got canceled at a free thinking place in Oxford. And I said, wow. And he said, yeah, uh, if you're not careful, Richard Dawkins going to ask if he can start going on the Christian speaking circuit soon. Uh-huh. <laughs> we would welcome him. Uh, I, I think, though, that you're making such an important point there, because this is when we're thinking about where we're going to send our kids. Yes. It's it, uh, so many comments in the chat box are like, so what do we do? Like, how do we respond? And I think part of my response is you're going to have to think about not sending your kids to these schools. Like there's going to have to be, you know, one of the possible solutions is. Is. It's going to have to hurt some of these schools financially a bit, you know, to get them to change, because right now the push toward these things is so strong towards these ideologies and these people, this this another thing that's come up in a lot of the conversations Monique and I have had Christian colleges started noticing this about 10 years ago. And so it's taken about 10 years for people to be hired, promoted, put in administrative positions, um, made department chairs at Christian schools. These things are not going to go away overnight. And if, if parents really want to apply the pressure, they're going to have to think about, other options, I think, and not just blindly sending their students to these schools. You want to go to some comments? Go ahead. I do want to go to some comments, but I also want to say that I, 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 I don't know that I believe that it's only been in the last 10 years. I feel like that's a little bit of malarkey if I if I want to keep it Christian-y. But um, because, I mean, I was at Biola in, in 2001. I'm talking about the, and, on the administrative level. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm not talking about my professors. I'm talking about people who sat in in places of administration, even then, you know, and I'm just like, it's a little yeah, more it, low key. It's a little bit, it was a little, yeah, it was a little bit more low key. And I think maybe you can, you can round it up and say, well, 10 years ago, people started to speak out and be more robust in their conversations. But I don't know that it, it's only been within the last 10 years. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. I do want to some questions. All right. Um, Guinevere MC or Mick um, says, uh, I'm on YouTube. And let's see, it says, is it useful for Christians to consider CRT slash cultural Marxism as a worldview or even a religion of its own? Perhaps this will help us engage more sympathetically. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, if you read the early, and, and again, CRT is one subset, that's yeah. race. So that's the twin pillars of Marxism, neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, and race studies. Those two things together make up critical race theory. Uh, but CT more broadly, and, and we need to remember that CRT has just come like a crazy horse since Floyd. Uh, it's been here all along, but it's not the only category. These are across the board, Obergefeller, um, sexual revolution. It's not just socioeconomic uh, oppression that uh, Marxism is supposed to be liberating us from. It's also the values and beliefs in the broader culture uh, for heteronormativity, for um, marriage, institutions and culture that uh, are grounded in some other narrative uh, out, outside of cultural Marxism. I mean, marriage is part of this. The family is part of this. Marx uh, summarized his, his view as the abolishing of private property and getting rid of the family. And you look at the Black Lives Matter stuff recently on dismantling uh, the nuclear family. This stuff is, is, is part of this. Um, so we need to think about it more in terms of critical theory and not just critical race theory. And I think I've, I've forgot the line of question she had after that. Um, the, the, let's see, the end of it, and I actually just lost it, was, do you think that considering it a worldview um, would make us more sympathetic? Or a little, yeah. yeah, religion. A, a lot of the early um, neo-Marxists, they did view it religiously. And in fact, Ibram Kendi, and by the way, this is something that we need to do to push back on this too. I'll, I'll share this in just one minute. Because uh, I was just interacting with uh, some stuff with Ibram Kendi here at Purdue University, but a lot of the early Marxists viewed it almost uh, quasi-religious. It was it was devotional. It was it was their life. Um, and Kendi, uh, who's got the book How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, he talks about in his own testimony that he can't help but feel like his commitment to this movement is akin to his parents' conversion movement to a liberal Christianity, a, a liberation theology uh, kind of Christianity. But they speak in these terms like it is a religion. And it is a worldview, not, not in the sense that you think, you know, there, is three, there are three worldviews, uh, theism, atheism, and pantheism. That is um, theism, God and creation, or creator and creation. Pantheism, all is mind. Uh, materialism or atheism, all is matter. And those are the three. This isn't like one of those. Look, it, it used to exist in atheism. It came from Marxism. Marx was an atheist, but it no longer does. This virus has morphed and it has found a more productive and viable host in the Christian church. Yeah. Um, and so this is why it, it doesn't need that worldview. It's not grounded in naturalism necessarily. It's found a home in theism, in Christian theism. But it is a worldview and it has the religious uh, devotion. It is a worldview in the sense that it has a view of reality about human relations. It has an epistemology, a theory of knowledge, and it has an ethic. What is the problem? What is the solution? Uh, it's got all of that. So yes, it is a worldview. I think that, that one of the things that I hear so often though, is that when we because what we Monique and I say is that it operates for many people as a worldview. It well, then they come for you. Oh, they come for us. They come and hard say, for you. No, it's not. You don't know what you're talking it's an about. Analytical framework, an it's, analytical tool. You know, and it's like okay, and so it's like yeah, there is some 
truth to that, that it's an analytical framework. It's a way of understanding data. It's, it's a way of understanding and interpreting data uh, that we see. But for most people, it is operating now as a worldview. And there is something to be said about the early advocates of it that for them it functioned as a worldview. Yeah, and I, I say that in part is because most people aren't trained academically to sit and understand this is exact, this is how, you know, a worldview, or not a worldview, but this is how an analytical tool should be used. So you can extrapolate this data, look at it on a bigger picture, not take this, like the other parts of the tool or the the parts that are not congruent with Christianity. No, people people don't think like that. Yeah, we look at something and, and we take the whole. But I want there's a were you going to say something, Doctor Miller? Well, I was just going to add. You know, earlier uh, when uh, Krista talked about, you know, we may not want to go to some of these schools. Um, you know, that's that's one option. Uh, but another one is we need to put the pressure on these these institutions. We cannot afford to lose them. We shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. We started the universities, and we abdicated our role and responsibility in high culture. We got to fight a little bit. We got to fight for these things. Yeah. I mean, hey, let me just tell you, Ibram Kendi at Purdue, one of the free thinking schools, the number three school that came out, the first public university, but the third school to adopt academic freedom from the Chicago principles. Um, Suddenly they, after this Floyd thing, they brought in Ibram Kendi, uh, Patrice, the founder of uh, Black Lives Matter. Patrice Colors. Uh, Yeah. Crump, so yeah, Crump, the attorney, um, and Dis- Bona de Silva, and then they had another set of speakers, and these are all Marxist thinkers that they brought into Purdue. And I knew the provost bringing them in, and I knew his background when he got hired because I, I could smell this stuff. I reached out to the president of Purdue, let him know who I was, my background, and I said, "Here's what's being uh, taught," and I'm, I'm published in Marxism. Uh, I work with faculty at Purdue. They're telling me this stuff. Uh, Have you considered this? He wrote back within 24 hours and said, thank you. You're right. I'm going to have my provost look into this and get a new group of speakers representing a viewpoint diversity. uh, And he'll report back to you when he's done. Well, I followed up. And then lo and behold, last week, they wrote back and they have a group of eight more coming in. Now, they're all liberal, not Marxist. That's an improvement, both because it's viewpoint diversity, but it's still not representing the whole. So I I jumped in, offered my services there a little bit more. Look, this is a former governor of Indiana and the president of a public university. And I just pushed and I had some influence. How much more so should we have influence in Christian universities? Christian parents need to be talking to the administrators. They need to be asking questions. They need to be pushing back on some of this stuff. They need to be um, putting up counter petitions because this stuff is mission drift is the norm, not the exception. It has happened to almost every university in America and it's starting to happen to wave two. I'm glad you said that. Um, I'm all for a good fight. Don't play no games. But the question that um, that has come up in the in the chat, a question that I was going to ask, too, is, with the with the thought that we need to fight for these institutions, are you saying that we don't need to go along with a third wave, but actually sit and and hold our ground and fight for the second wave institutions? Right. I mean, I'm open to that. But look, a, a lot of campus ministries, I've had talks with the presidents. They don't want to litigate. 
uh, we're too busy asking the question, what would Jesus do? And that's fine as far as that goes. I mean, I'm a moral philosopher. I've asked that question, right? Um, but if I asked what would Jesus do on everything, I wouldn't have three children at home because I wouldn't have had sexual intercourse because Jesus, unless it was the Mormon Jesus, I wouldn't have had <laughs> intercourse, right? Uh, Jesus wouldn't be a police officer. He wouldn't be a, a judge in a federal court unless, you know, he was going to let them all off the hook. Um, no, because his mission was different. His calling, so to speak, he was the Messiah. If you ask what would Paul do, Paul would litigate the heck out of people. He would appeal to Caesar. And guess what? Because at Ratio Christi, we have been in, involved in 30 cases of legal proceedings with two federal victories. We have our first now Supreme Court case coming up in January on free speech, free association, and speech zones. Because we were willing to do that yesterday, today we've been given the opportunity to change culture tomorrow and free everybody to set national precedent. Why do we need to give up? Christians don't believe in uh, Christ transforming culture or in some cases fighting for certain things in culture. This is not about prayer in schools. This is about cognitive liberty. It's not even free speech. It goes beyond that. If you think the wrong thought, you get canceled or destroyed. Yes. Which would be tragic at, at a secular university, but even more so at a Christian university, because the Christian worldview is, is I think, where free speech rests. And I, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think there's something so important in what he's saying in the fight. Like, I think too many times we, and you know, y'all know I can be hard on Christians, so I'm gonna try and be nice. But too many times we just wanna sit and be like, well, you know, I don't really wanna offend anyone. I don't want to go, you know, and cause trouble. Or no, sometimes you gotta put your foot down and be like, not today. This is not gonna come in to my child's Christian school. We have 19 generations that go to this school. And today I'm not gonna have my grandchild come up into this school and get indoctrinated into a false worldview. Like it, it's not gonna happen. And we need to be using our, and I say it all the time, our voice, our vote and our dollar to be able to say, no, we're not going to allow this. I'm going to have this conversation with you. You are going to see me. We're going to write letters. We're going to petition. We're going to call people to the carpet on it. There's too much but, at stake. Yeah, yes, too the, much at stake. And you can't just like, <laughs> there's a certain aspect of, of Christian culture of like being nice that, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm not on that nice train, but I think Monique's helped me appreciate this a little bit is that, yeah, gentleness and respect has its place and it is a good thing. And then sometimes you got to apply some pressure. Sometimes you've got to 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 do some things to put some pressure and not just accept the nice answers, the diplomatic answers and and just keep pushing the data forward and keep saying, "Yeah, but but you're telling me this, but here's what's really happening." And here's what, you know, and and really making your making your case. That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. I think, um, you know, yeah. So we've talked about a couple of responses. I think another response uh, that Christians are going to have to think about more and more is you just don't consent. You just don't say yes to this stuff. I mean, you know, just because someone tells you, well, you're white, you don't have a voice, sit down and be quiet. Doesn't mean you have you to say not today. Say you don't have to do that. You, 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 you could, um, Say choose something, something else. Choose something else. There's other possibilities available. Yeah. And there there has to come some some wherewithal inside of ourselves, some moral courage 
of I'm not going to consent to this narrative and to what these people are speaking over me. I think another strategy parents are going to have to get engaged with is training their kids and having these conversations and telling them, look, if you go to your Christian college and someone starts telling you that you need to repent for your whiteness or you need to join a a group for white students to explore their white privilege um, as a club, a campus club on a Christian college, you know, say no. You don't have to consent to that. So here's a question from David Hampton. He says it's on YouTube. Do you guys think that we have enough power or ability to make a difference? It seems we are always being silenced. Look at what happened to big stories that were suppressed during election. What do you guys think? I think that the great equalizer of a lot of these things now is, yeah, there are is some censoring going on in some of the platforms, but I think that enough can get through that, especially if you're if you have a platform of social media parent groups and for Christian college, YouTube, there's things that you can do to raise questions and you can do it respectfully. You can ask tough questions. You can say, well, what's happening here? Why is this happening? You know, go to the appropriate people. You can write letters to the president and you can apply some pressure because people need to know. Here's another thing that I think people can do. A lot of times I feel like we have people who are saying things But nobody is brave enough to even go on social media and share it. Like, Rochelle Christie puts out good content. The the book that was just put out with um, Neil and Uncle Pat. Like, that's good stuff. Go, It's a link. Just go on and share the information. We put out... Yeah, go get, right connect, go get connected with Rashio Christie. I should have brought my book downstairs. Follow the um, work of Dr. Corey Miller and Rashio Christie and what they're doing. You can get this free download of Neil and Pat's book. It's quality and it's informative and you can share it. It doesn't take a lot of time. Krista and I, Krista is a theologian and she's, I've been in seminary 22 minutes. Y'all ain't gonna always trust what I say, but Krista is good stuff. Like share her content, get sound theology out there because and combat what is being put out. We talk about critical race theory. We talk about critical, we focus more on critical race theory than any of the other critical social theories. But Neil, Neil Shinvey, Pat Sawyer, like Edwin Ramirez is talking about all kind of good stuff. We won't even go on social media and share these things because we're afraid of getting canceled or doxxed. At some point, our voice is going to go away if we do not choose to take a stand. That's right. Two things about that. Right now, I'm, I'm studying with a former student of mine who ran for attorney general this year and another lawyer that works with the Department of Justice. We're, we're studying revolution for the next 12 months and trying to get a hold of what's happening in our culture. Um, and if you know, one author that we're looking at is Edmund Burke, who is famous for saying that all that needs to happen for evil to triumph is for good men to or women to stand by and do nothing. Uh, remember the, uh, silent, the conspiracy of silence uh, that Martin Niemöller talked about, the German pastor after World War II. He said, first they came for the trade unionists. I was not a trade unionist, so I said nothing. Then they came for the socialist. I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for the Jew, and I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't speak up. Last of all, they came for me, and no one was left to speak up. Uh, We need to be uh, vocal. We need to be smart about it, not stupid. Um, and we don't need to necessarily sacrifice certain things if we need to be in the game, 
follow God and maybe he'll call you what to do, when to be silent, when to speak. There's a time to speak, time to be silent. But we can't kowtow. We can't be cowards. These guys, this new view, uh, this is bullying. It's not like the old liberal atheist perspective. They're even getting bullied. Richard Dawkins is, Sam Harris is, um, Steven Pinker at Harvard is. Um, there is a great realignment taking place between some liberal atheists and conservative Christians on this note. Um, we need to continue to preach the gospel and make that the uh, priority, but the gospel is not heard in a vacuum. It's heard against the backdrop of the cultural milieu in which it takes place, uh, which is both a worldview and there are certain legal parameters. If you're kicked off the university, you can't proclaim the gospel there. I would agree. And you know, something else that's, that's coming to me, and like I said just a minute ago, we do talk a lot about um, critical race theory. That's something that's just, between Krista and I, that's been, you know, on our heart a lot. And so that's the angle that we come from. I feel like that's our lane. And in relation to that, I will say that even though truth does not have like objective truth does not have a color associated with it or attached to it in this cultural moment, I believe that there will need to be people of color who will speak up on behalf of our white brothers and sisters who are running the risk of getting canceled by culture, who are running the risk of getting fired for standing for truth. And a lot of times this isn't a popular message. This isn't something that that is popular to be said. People will write in all the time and be like, well, why are you using your voice for the white person? We are brothers and sisters. And when it comes to standing up for truth and who who will stand up and who can stand up, I, I believe everybody should stand up, one. But two, I believe that people of color, we actually have a kind of a different lane and a different, um, I don't know if advantage is the right word, but we have a different, kind of a different platform and we need to be speaking in directly to some of these areas that are being overrun with thoughts from other people of color that are seeking to annihilate and, and like dismantle white, our white brothers and sisters. All right. We're going to wrap it up because we could keep talking to Corey all night. He probably has a life. Uh, one more question. Uh, Yente. Uh, our, whoop, Yente? Uh, I don't know if it's Yente or Zach, but one of them. It might be Zach. YouTube. Uh, YouTube. Uh, wanted to know a little bit more about Ratio Christie. Uh, Corey, and do you train your Ratio Christi staff to combat the ideology of critical theory? And what are what is Ratio Christi doing to stand against critical theory? Yeah, because our Ratio Christi friends go hard. Well, I, against I could have said this uh, more at the beginning, but Ratio Christi means the reason of Christ. So it's not just the reason of God, but it's a Christ centered organization. Our mission is equipping students and faculty with historical, philosophical and uh um, cultural apologetics, reasons to follow Christ, uh, thoughtful Christianity, transforming lives on campus today, changing culture tomorrow is our vision. Been around for about 10 years. We're on about 125 campuses. Uh, we have a partnership with a grad school in apologetics in Southeast Asia. We have a study center in Oxford. We're in Pakistan. We just got uh, you know, charitable status up in Canada. So we're on the move. Uh, we've only been around for about 10 years. Uh, but we bring on people to uh, start chapters or be assistant or associate chapter directors at our universities. Uh, we try to go after professors. We have an RC prof division, uh, high schoolers, RC college prep, and then, of course, international. 
But because we're on the campuses constantly, what separates us from the other apologetics ministries is that we're on the campus. What separates us from the other campus ministries is we do apologetics evangelism. We taste this stuff real time. We don't have to wait for it to come in the news or from some pop level apologetics book. We know what the questions are today. When people were still focused on the millennials, the millennials are long gone in many ways. <laughs> we already knew Gen Z was here. This was the first piece. We published the first piece in the nation from a Christian perspective on that's critical about critical theory. So we are cutting edge in, in the sense that we, um, we're partnering with all of our seminaries. Uh, we partner with other campus ministries. We differ with them, uh, sometimes in, in big ways, but we believe that we can do bigger and better things together. And uh, we are unapologetic about the gold at the end of the rainbow. The university, you wanna change the culture, you gotta go after the university. And you gotta go after the professor too. Uh, that's the 1040 window of the Western world. So we try to um, partner with organizations that can uh, get people trained, discounts to our chapter directors to go to seminary, uh, programs that are you know six weeks, that are four months, that are one year. You can even get a doctorate with us with our partner institutions if you wanted to do that. So we will find a way in partnership. Uh, if you think about joining us, if you've got questions for us, uh, feel free to ask and, and we'll give responses. We have about a dozen of these little booklets on other topics as well. Um, contact us, ratiochristi.org, join the movement, help us to reclaim the intellectual voice of Christ at the most influential institution in civilization. Very good. And I want to let people know again how they can get connected with you and get that free booklet and follow your ministry, Corey. They can go to ratiochristi.org slash resources slash publications. And you can get our friends. We like to call them Uncle Neil and Uncle Pat. Cousin Pat. Cousin, Cousin Neil, sorry. Cousin Neil and Uncle, Uncle Pat. Pat. Uh, their little book on critical theory and social justice. It's a great, it's awesome um, little overview and uh, to, to get started in the conversation. It's so clear yeah. and not super heady and, you know, like way away from the, the lay person. And there might be people watching tonight that might be interested in becoming a campus evangelist with Rocio Christie. I want to encourage you to go check out what they're doing. Maybe um, you're someone who might want to think about doing a high school prep program through Rocio Christie to help equip high schoolers to get ready for college. You can get connected with them as a campus evangelist on a high school level or as a college level. And I have many friends in ministry who are connected to Ratio Christi, yeah. it's a quality organization and get released as a missionary um, to students. So yeah, we've got creative ways to outreach too. I mean, we bring in ex-porn stars and ex-sex slaves, have them tell their story, give the gospel, and then we'll have a debate on God and morality, right? Um, or we'll do events on is Christianity a white man's religion uh, or on the book that changed the world. Uh, we partner with non-Christians too. When I was with Peter Bogosian, we traveled four universities in Utah. We're getting ready to do Texas next. Um, we get creative, but we, we do friendly dialogue uh, on hot topics. Um, and we've got probably just as many non-believers in our clubs as we do believers. So awesome. if you enjoy engaging people with the gospel, um, and think about the strategic value of having a Christian presence on the university. 
Well, we want to thank, thank you, Corey, for being with us tonight, being so generous with your time. Uh, one comment on the message says, I don't want this episode to end. It was so good. Oh, no. So thank you so much for, for sewing into us. And I'd love to have you back sometime to talk about another topic. It's just been very uh, informational. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. All right. We'll God bless see you. Have a good night. All right. Um, our brother, yes. Edwin Ramirez. Yes. He is now on Facebook and he said, Jesus called us to count the cost. If we are going to follow him and make him known, we must not love our lives more than loving and proclaiming Christ to live as Christ and to die as gain. What can man do to us? Lord, help us. Come on, brother Edwin. A lot. That is I appreciate good, him. That is a good comment. I do, do, do appreciate him. Edwin, uh, return our messages so we can have you on the show again. That that and when that's not actually the comment that she needs, I, she 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 don't have all the information. Don't disregard. Yes, we want to have Edwin on again. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. You know, Sarah gonna come for us. You better watch out. Sarah's his wife. She she ain't playing, y'all. Don't don't be coming for her, man. And when we apologize, um, no, they're they're great. Okay, all so right. all right, well we got a big announcement. We do have a big announcement because because you skipped all the house cleaning. So I have a little too much sinus medicine. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. All right. So here's the big announcement. We have on December 6th, yes. which is a Sunday night. Yes. Mark your calendars, people. Five o'clock p.m. Pacific. Pacific. The launch party for Dr. Thaddeus Williams. <gasps> His book is finally coming out. Um, it's been available for pre-order. But Where, the, where's the that choir? Uh, well, the actual <laughs> release of it the, for, for the physical will be on December 23rd. Right. And we're doing the, the launch party for Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth on Sunday, December 6th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll have special guests and we may even have a little something, something to give away. So we're going to have some surprise guests. But we want to encourage you to go pre-order the book right now because that's what's really going to have help uh thaddeus out so go to amazon and pre-order your book yes because uh the pre-orders really help to raise visibility about this important book and we're always trying to counter with a strong presence on amazon of all these pro well, social here's justice the thing. Books. somebody mentioned like do you think we can actually do something we can we actually use our voice well this is the way you can use your yeah. voice you want we want to counter ibram kendi's book how to be an anti-racist which is just racism Get, get on here and pre-order the book. Show Amazon, show the the publishing companies and things like that, that this book is in demand and it's needed yeah. in our culture and in this current moment. Yeah, that's a good that's a good word. So go pre-order your book. Mark uh, December 6th on your calendar for the launch party. So uh, it's going to be a good time. OK, are you ready? Yes. For the tweet. Are there any more announcements of the week? There are no more announcements? No, no more announcements. Are you sure? I don't know. There are. Hello, folks. So our tweet of the week is from our friend Ariel Gonzalez-Bavat. And I thought this was a pretty good tweet. Ariel is uh, similar to you in that she used to be woke. Yes. Uh, But she has come out of that. Uh, You can go follow her on Twitter if you want uh, provocative anti-woke posts. Yes. uh, At Ariel Bavad. She'd be keeping it 100. She she keeps it 100. 
She's uh, so I thought this was a particularly good one. If a Christian racial reconciliation ministry, which I think shall remain nameless, demands you to be silent for months before interacting with other Christians, you're joining an ethno Gnostic cult, not a ministry. You are literally giving up your image of God bearing characteristics so you can gain membership. Go on to the second tweet. Just scroll down. By learning from others more enlightened due to their skin color and claiming they have skin based experiences that give them higher wisdom. Stop it. Yes. That's too much self-hatred going on to prove you, you aren't a racist. Open your Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom. And then the world famous, the real Monique D. Commented. Yes, I said, I would say that a Christian racial reconciliation ministry is misinterpreting scripture. Like we can just, let's just leave it there. If you are a Christian racial reconciliation ministry, you have misinterpreted scripture. You have gone off the path somewhere. So, because as Uncle Virgil would say, races don't reconcile hearts still. That's right. So I thought it was a pretty good tweet because it there I think that there is a thought among many white people of I need to prove to the world that I am not a racist. And this is one of the kind of the the things that that is out there right now to kind of pay your dues to to prove that you are not a racist is to be silent. And there is some cult-like pressure at times to comply with that. So that was a very provocative post. So I liked it. Yeah, I did. did. And if you have not followed us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anything, find us. We are there, the Center for Biblical Unity. And we're going to might see the shortest relationship ever with social media with Monique on Parlor. What in the world is going on with Parlor? So I went to, I made a Parlor account and then. It, you got like 600 followers already. I do. I have a bunch of followers. But when I went to go put up, I don't know if it's a GIF or a GIF, whatever it is. I went to go parlay. I went to parlay and they told me you can't do this until you show us your passport. Or your California driver's license. And I'm like, you what? You're not getting my passport. <laughs> or or my ID. I was, I was so confused. But they were like, yes, you can't post this link until you show us it. And I tried multiple ways. And they were like, nope. And I said, the devil is a lie. I'm not about to do that. So that might be a short relationship. Yeah. Oh, Parler, Parler and I are going to be breaking up real soon. <laughs> you don't you don't sort yourself trying to get my stuff. All right. Anyway, as we wrap up, we want to encourage you, as we always do, if you, your place of employment, your ministry, church, whatever, are looking for resources and more information on things like justice, critical race theory, theology, invite us to come out. We are traveling and we are definitely booking our calendar for 2021. Don't don't come for us in January, though. January done. (laughs) January is is a wash, but it's exciting. It's exciting to go and meet the family face to face and to give historic Christian wisdom into some of these these areas. So yep. that is it. You can check out the website at Center for Biblical Unity and go to speaking and or I think it's speaking. Yeah. yeah, we'll have our moderators put that in the chat so yes. people can see about uh, how they get connected with you for speaking. Yeah. Or both of us. Yeah. And then you can also go on theology mom's website, theologymom.com, and have her come out and she will teach you all the things that I can't because hello seminary for 27 minutes. 
Oh, but she gosh. does a bunch of good good talks and um just a lot of good theology, sound sound theology. Well, so, we hope you enjoyed the yes. show and found it helpful. Please share this show. That's the best way, a great way, a practical way to help support us is sharing the show, like the show, hit that thumbs up. Make sure you're subscribed on all our channels so you'll receive alerts. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you for all you've done this year to help promote the show. Yeah. Um, the show has really grown so much and we are deeply grateful for what you're doing. And just please keep sharing the show and bringing this life-changing message of hope and uh, the historic Christian faith to your friends and family, your places of influence. We need every voice, every person standing up in their sphere of inf influence. Don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Uh, don't consent <laughs> to, to things. Don't be intimidated. You don't have to be bullied, but you can find unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. And with that said, we are out. God See bless. you next week. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.